Hi, this is Beth AQ, and this is the podcast of The Glass House, a weekly radio show that airs on Triple R each Wednesday. The Glass House is a space for spoken word artists, poets, sound makers, audio storytellers, emerging cultural leaders, thinkers, writers, and anyone who celebrates story as a means of self-expression, self-representation, and community building. I hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via Twitter at BethanyAQ or the Triple R website. I acknowledge that we broadcast from stolen unceded lands here at Triple R, the lands of the Wandry people of the Kulin Nation. I pay my respects to elders past and present and to the elders of the lands of which this broadcast reaches. It always was and it always will be Aboriginal land. Coming up on the show today, I'll be joined by journalist, writer and producer Mal Chun to speak about her new audio documentary that is all about the Chinese history of Tasmania. Uh, The docker is called Tin Valley. And later on in the show, I'll be joined by podcast producer Madeline Heather to speak about her podcast called Reclaim Me. It champions the stories of victim survivors in order to break down the many barriers that they face. Uh, it uh, might come as no surprise that that one will feature uh, mentions of uh, sexual assault and domestic violence. So if that's not something you are up for today, that's totally fine. Uh, uh, if you do need... Uh, always you can reach out to Lifeline for free at any time of the day or night on 13 11 14. Very excited to be chatting with these guests this afternoon. I hope you can stay with me here in Triple R. Prompted by the rise in anti-Asian racism around the start of the coronavirus pandemic, Mel Chun set out to research the Chinese history of Tasmania and made some surprising discoveries. Tasmania has a long and rich history of Chinese immigration. In the 19th century, the town of Weldborough had a booming Chinese population that outnumbered Europeans 10 to 1. They worked in the tin mines, owned most local businesses and even started Tasmania's first casino. There was an ornate local temple and the remains of a Chinese cemetery can still be seen there today. By telling the stories of Chinese Tasmanian families, Mal hopes to discredit the myth upon which so much racism feeds that Australia is, or ever was, white. Tin Valley is the new audio documentary by Mal Chun, and we have Mal on the line today. Thanks so much for your time. Hi, Beth. Thanks for having me on. Uh, It's a pleasure. Mal, maybe let's start at the beginning. Where did this research project begin for you? Um, Yeah, so around the start of COVID, I was living in Hobart and I was seeing, as you said, a a rise in anti-Asian racism um, sort of around the coronavirus. Uh, And I I guess I started thinking about, you know, it's obviously anti-Asian racism is a multifaceted problem, but I think one of the problems is this myth of Australian whiteness and this idea that anyone that isn't white isn't from here sort of thing, even though, you know, obviously Chinese-Australian families have been living here, um, you know, within 15 years of of European invasion. Um, And I think that that sort of fueled this racism towards anyone that looked Asian because it was this idea that maybe they were all just, like, you know, uni students that had just come last year or something like that. Um, And and so I guess 
yeah, starting this project was kind of just a, a small drop in the ocean of, of correcting that history and trying to sort of reverse that narrative that um, Chinese people or, or Asian presenting people had just come off the boat. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that that was... It was the first inkling of an idea anyway. And that's really where, um, you know, the documentary starts. It, you know, you talk about how Chinese people were buying goods from Aboriginal people long before Captain Cook and his mates came over. Can you kind of speak, I suppose, to the beginnings of that, of that documentary and the history of Chinese people uh, in Tasmania where the doco begins? Yeah, in Tasmania specifically. Um, yeah, so I was talking more about... Uh, um, China trading with Aboriginal people on the, the northern coast of Australia uh, through the Makassan people, mm. the Pacific Islands. Um, but more specifically in Tasmania, there were tin miners coming over, um, usually from the Victorian goldfields, but sometimes directly from China. Um, so there was a, sort of a thing going on where villages would get together the money to send young men over to the tin fields um, to sort of make enough money to then uh, send money back to the village and look after their their elders there, but then also to to eventually come home and, you know, set up a a home and a family and that sort of thing. Um, But the other way that they came over was uh, a lot of Chinese people were experiencing a lot of racism in, in the gold fields, and there were actually a couple of riots that led to... Um, some pretty horrendous violence over there. So a lot of the the Chinese gold miners actually chose to come to Tasmania because there was this reputation in Tasmania that, that there was less racism, mm. which from all accounts, um, from sort of first-hand accounts and, and talking to people who are direct descendants of those tin miners, that is actually true, that there was um, less racism to some extent. And um, that has a lot to do with the the proportion of the population as well, because there were so many Chinese people, you know, there was, um, the Europeans were, uh, were outnumbered in some places. So, yeah, so hence a bit less racism. Obviously still, yeah, there was some, some horrendous racism, but um, it was a place that they felt was safer for them at that time. Mm-hmm. And this is about the, the mid to late 1800s we're talking about. And, and through your research, you learn about the technique of um, ground sluicing, if I am saying it correctly. Can you speak to what that is and its kind of historical context? Yeah, um, not really, because I don't understand the, the technicalities of, of mining. Um, but what I understand was that the Europeans were, were using a more difficult method to extract the tin. And then when the Chinese started coming over, they had this, this method using uh, water where they would sort of flush the earth through a sluice and extract the tin that way. And I think initially they were sort of laughed at and it was like, oh, what's, you know, what's this strange technology that these foreign people had? But eventually the Europeans sort of realised that it was actually a lot easier. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, by all accounts, the Chinese actually brought, brought a lot of technology to China, uh, to Tasmania, and did sort of revolutionise the, the mining there. Um, they really had this this reputation not only for ingenuity, um, but also for their uh, strength and endurance. You know, even though 
on average they were like of smaller builds than the Europeans. They they tended to be able to carry even heavier loads than the Europeans. And, you know, a lot of um, <clears throat> European recounts, even though they are kind of critical and racist, um, do actually admit that, you know, <laughs> despite... Um, despite their misgivings about the, the Chinese tin miners, they're sort of like, oh, yeah, but they are actually stronger than us. <laughs> um, which, you know, I guess is a really interesting story. I think there's uh, there's a problem in that narrative as well. Um, I was actually, this is a bit of a tangent, but I was talking to a friend in Saudi Arabia and he was saying, oh, you know, there's this really similar sort of racist narrative here about... Um, migrants and how, you know, the only good thing we have to say about them is that they work harder, you know. Mm. Um, and that's, it's kind of, um, it, the things that we choose to, to glorify about people that we see as the other is very telling about the value that they, that we feel that they hold in, in our society, if mm. that makes sense. Mm. Um, so even though, yeah, I was really interested in this this way that they sort of were honouring, you know, the hard work of the of the Chinese tin miners, I think in a way there's a dehumanising element to that as well um, because it's sort of like, oh, well, you know, we don't really want them here, but at least they make good workhorses, you know what I mean? Um, yeah, so sorry, that was a bit of a tangent, but... <laughs> no, not yeah. at all. I, I'm I just, that, that made sense. <laughs> Definitely. And I'm interested when you are... I suppose, telling stories that are kind of pushing back against a dominant narrative, uh, you know, an accepted truth that people do have. What's that experience like for Mm. you as the journalist going out and and speaking um, with people that perhaps haven't had their truths acknowledged in the way that perhaps they should be? Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting in Tasmania and um, in Australia as a whole with... Chinese Australian families, I think um, a lot of the time that history was suppressed. Like similar to, um, you know, Aboriginal families, where they there is they are able maybe to present as white now their descendants, and they have these stories about how, you know, the Aboriginal members of their family, they the family sort of pretended that they didn't exist or whatever. Mm. Um, it's similar with with a lot of Chinese-Australian families. Uh, but what I was surprised by, at least talking to a couple of the descendants, the Chinese tin miners, was was sort of the pride that they had mm. in that Chinese history, even though they, yeah, they, they, the people that I was talking to could have passed as white, but they were sort of saying, you know, oh, I grew up believing that I was Chinese and um, my family always held on to this, this heritage and this this history um, mm. as something really integral and important to their culture, um, and that was that was really beautiful to me because I think my yeah my family history is very complicated. Um, it's not something that that everyone is necessarily proud of, and and in some areas that's that's for a good reason because yeah there's a lot of you know I won't get into it but there's a lot of darkness in my history as well. Um, so, yeah, I guess I found that really, really beautiful and and felt a sort of a longing for that, um, that lack of a disconnection in, in, the, in the history, if that makes sense. Um, 
but but yeah, I suppose to answer your question more directly, I think also I was surprised by one how important this history is to the people that have lived it, but two, like how invisible this history is to most of Tasmania as well. Um, in in the north east around Weldborough, it seems to be a history that a lot of the um, you know even the European descendants around there are very proud of. Um, but in wider Tasmania, no one even knows the Chinese people were there, you know. And the only remnant that we have of it really is, like, a few artefacts in the Launceston Museum. There's a there's a tiny museum in St Helens, and there's, like, a rundown graveyard in Weldborough, and that's it, you know. Mm. And there's the, uh, the Tin Dragon Trail, which is sort of like a tourist trail, but that's... I mean, that's almost a little bit insincere. I think that's kind of set up for... Yeah, for tourists, essentially, and it doesn't really do justice to the history. So, mm. um, yeah, I mean, I, I think there's, there's a dual thing going on. There's this, this pride and this holding on to that, those stories within the families and within the, the, the towns that mm. were affected by that. But, yeah, there's not, there's not really a, um, a popular documentation or, or, like, teaching of that history in mm-hmm. Tasmania, from what I can see, which is sort of the record that I'm trying to correct as mm-hmm. well, I suppose, in a small way. Absolutely. And, that, I mean, it's a big task when you're kind of uh, filling filling the gap in, in a big way when there's, yeah, lack of, of records. Um, and I think it's an incredibly important work. Mel, I'm interested in the audio element of, you know, why you chose to... Um, make this into an audio documentary over, I suppose, other forms? What, how did that decision um, mm. come about? Yeah, look, I've thought a lot about the medium of audio. Um, I actually started out my, my master's research uh, looking at how audio kind of uh, can tread the line between serious objective journalism and, you know, personal narrative storytelling. Um, I think audio has this really intimate personal element where it's, it's sort of in your ear, you know, there's a voice speaking in your ear and you, it's, it's easy to um, create a relationship with the narrator or the storyteller or the journalist um, and get taken along for that ride. I suppose within that medium, um, given all those things, there is also sort of this opportunity for manipulation and exploitation, which is not so great either. And I, I feel that way a lot of, uh, about, you know, a lot of um, American storytelling podcasts that I feel sometimes take that too far. Um, and, you know, I think in Australia, our, our storytelling podcasts, they, they, um, they borrow a lot from that genre. Um, and I, I'm really trying to find a way, and I don't know if I'm succeeding, but I'm trying to find a way to to take it away from that, but not so much that it's not entertaining and, and engaging anymore. So I'm trying to walk the line between, you know, m- taking history away from that sort of like highbrow intelligentsia um, ownership of of history and and making it accessible, but at the same time not making it like infotainment Hmm. if that makes sense Um, and again I don't know if I'm succeeding in doing that but but yeah that's that's my goal I suppose 
I think that's such an interesting point and I feel like a lot of Australian audio doco makers are kind of really grappling with that like what does Australian storytelling look like kind of as you said pushing back against uh, some of the ideals of the way that American podcasting does it because yeah, as you said, I think sometimes it can be formulaic and trying to fit a story within a um, yeah within a formula or method as opposed to kind of the other way around. Um, the other way. Yeah, which I feel like is you know trying to aim for authenticity, even though that word has been kind of thrown around a lot. Um, Mel, I know for this series that you worked with yeah. um, Simon, um, who I believe did the um, music for it. Can you tell me a little bit about what that collaboration looked like? Uh. Simon. <laughs> Did you say Simon? Yes, sorry, is that oh, sorry, Ben. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so Ben Cannings. I do know an, a couple of Simon, so I was like, oh, did I mention? <laughs> sorry, oh, I think no, you mentioned that's right. Simon my friend, at the start. <laughs> yeah, my friend Simon was the first one to tell me about the the, the uh, graveyard. Yes, yeah, so yeah. that's that's that connection. But yeah, my friend Ben, ben Cannings um, is a composer. He studied at the conservatorium and he's uh, he's had some stuff played by the Tasmanian Symphony Orchestra, um, but he's so yeah. So he he's got like a classical composition background, um, but he is very interested in composition for podcasting and how I guess you know it's this it's this really interesting niche of the industry where um, I think podcasting and audio storytelling requires really highly skilled sound design, but at the same time you can't be um, like a big personality in that. Like it, it doesn't require the kind of music that, hey, look at me, you know. it's It actually has to be really subtle um, and blend into the background and, and add to the narrative in a way that is invisible but really noticeable if it's not there. Um, and I think and it really gets that in a way that, you know, no no other musician that I've kind of encountered has done. Um, so, yeah, I was really stoked that he, he wanted to work on this with me and I think, yeah, he's, he's done an amazing job. Mm. Yeah. Oh, is that the question? I, yes, Sorry. absolutely. Yeah, I think it's a, <laughs> yeah. it's a very uh, – it's a tricky line to kind of um, – to walk along between uh, – yeah, implementing something to the story and, as you said, adding to the narrative but then also not, uh, yeah, taking the spotlight when that's not what the purpose is. Um, Mel, thank you so much for your time today. It's been such a pleasure to talk with you. No worries at all. Thank you, Beth. Uh, Tin Valley is a new audio documentary by Mel Chun. You can listen via melchun.com. You are listening to Triple R. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Content warning for this next interview. We'll be discussing uh, some themes of sexual assault and domestic abuse. So if that's not something that you're able to listen to today, that's so fine. Uh, Maybe just turn this one down. Uh, for crisis support, you can reach out to Lifeline on 13 11 14 or lifeline.org.au. And for sexual assault and domestic abuse support services, you can check out 1800RESPECT or their website 1800RESPECT.org.au. 
Reclaim Me is a podcast where survivors of abuse and trauma can tell their stories freely, reclaiming their voice, their narrative and control, centred around the vision that all victim survivors have the freedom to tell their story and that through doing so will provide valuable insight and education, destigmatizing assault and breaking down the many barriers experienced by survivors. Joining me to speak about it today, I have the creator and host of Reclaim Me, Madeline Heather. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Uh, it's a it's a pleasure to to have you on, Madeline. I know this is a, quite a personal endeavor for you. You begin this series by sharing your own story. Can you tell me what was the catalyst for you for this project? Yeah, I think when the Me Too movement really started to kick off, I had these experiences in my life where I realized that people were basically kind of saying or in, implying to me that I wasn't and shouldn't be speaking about my story. And the Me Too movement kind of happened. I shared a little bit and a little snippet here and there that something had happened to me um, as a child on social media. And the response that I started to get was so many people sharing their stories. And that kind of was the beginning of me wanting to really get this platform started so that we could have these chats and for these chats to be accessible to other people so that people are starting to become more aware that these discussions can be happening. Mm. And, I mean, podcasts are a really great um, medium, as you said. They are freely accessible. Um, You know, people can uh, listen to them in private um, where they feel safe. Why audio for you for this project? I think it was something like that. I mean, you've got this ability to be anonymous as well. We are facing so many hurdles to laws and defamation which make it really difficult in many aspects so a podcast is a really easy way to make somebody anonymous if they need to be or if they choose to be but also it gives the listener an opportunity to really piece together and not have to listen to everything at once each episode does come with that content warning as well so it's more of a safe environment for people to listen to these discussions but I feel you get more of an insight into these wonderful and incredible survivors as people, rather than reading snippets of stories, you get an insight into how they were feeling just by how they're speaking about their story. Mm. And I know so far you've published, uh, I think, 38 episodes, which is huge. You've spoken to um, people who have experienced domestic abuse, sexual violence, um, child abuse, sexual harassment, uh, you know, a bunch of different kind of uh, ranges of violence. What has that experience been like for you so far? What what have you learned? I've learned so much, but I think basically just that each and every person is human. And it was really important to me as a survivor myself to really embed these processes in the back end to make sure that this is an empowering process for people. So one thing that I can't have or don't want to have is is anybody coming on and telling their story and feeling re-traumatised? And that's why I really wanted to make sure that it's reclaiming their voice and reclaiming their narrative. So some episodes will be more explicit than others based on what the survivor wants to talk about and, and how they want to speak about it, where some people might really skim over some of the more violent or um, distressing details because that's how they want to say it as well. So I think that provides a really great change in dynamic. For me, I think as well, it's just been wonderful connecting. I recently started a survivor support network, which is on Facebook too, and that's been so great because I think 
so many of us who have experienced this just lack that connection with maybe somebody else who really understands. Mm. I think you brought up such an interesting point because I think when you're kind of making um, content around this, it is a kind of tricky line to toe to kind of keep yourself, um, your guests, yourself and your guests safe, um, also your listener. I'm interested when you are kind of tackling this uh, kind of subject matter, which is quite sensitive and, as you said, can potentially be re-traumatising. How do you keep yourself and your guests and your listeners safe? How does that kind of play into your thinking in the production? So with each guest specifically, I will always meet with them beforehand. So we do like an intro um, and we go over things like what their triggers may be um, and what things they can do and things that they can say to me. Now, the beauty of a podcast is it is post-production. So some people that have come on have said that was a good experience, but they're not ready to post it online yet. That's okay. And basically at each step, I've created a chance for each survivor to take back the the power and the strength in that situation. So at each stage, they're really making a choice whether they want to move forward and if they feel happy, empowered and safe to do so. Mm. Um, In terms of myself, I think it's just making sure that you've got your own self-care practices that are happening in place as well. So if I am feeling overwhelmed, I'll reschedule if I have to or anything like that, but mostly just making sure that I'm taking time to reflect um, and making sure I'm looking after myself too. Mm. You know, as you said, you have really created uh, a community of people um, from this project. You've started the network. Um, I'm interested, I suppose, when you do have such a, a clear audience in mind for this, what what has the response been like from people that have listened and, and got in touch with you? It's been really overwhelming, actually. I mean, I started this as a bit of a passion project, not realising that it would become something that people would be connecting with all over the world. Um, I think it's been streamed in 35 different countries at this stage. And I think a lot of people maybe for the first time via, you know, social media are feeling comfortable with reaching out for the first time. So that's been an incredibly empowering um, response. I've also had a lot of um, other people like family members of people who have gone through abuse or people who are connecting to have discussions about someone that they think could be potentially in a violent relationship or a controlling relationship. And it's been really great to open that conversation and link people with different services. And I think for the first time, we're really starting to actively and proactively look at these and address these matters as opposed to kind of just feeling like nothing bad's going to happen to people I know. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And it it seems like it really is kind of creating, you know, helps create a language for people that might be going through it that um, might not really be able to identify what it is yet, which, you know, is kind of a key part of um, psychological abuse. I'm interested, I suppose, you've done so many episodes now, you've spoken to a bunch of different people. Have there been particular themes and things that have come through a lot of the episodes that have, I don't know, made you think about um, this kind of thing in a a different way or that have kind of solidified your thinking? I think one of the things that's really impacted me, I mean, of course, the trauma is is horrible, but um, I think the aspects of a few of the domestic abuse cases, specifically surrounding financial abuse and and the the way that the banks and policies and things that we have in place aren't supporting enough people who have been financially abused, and that's creating so many downstream barriers for people who are trying to escape violence and escape this horrible cycle. And I think for me, one of the things that that's called out is that 
there is key substantial and really impactful change that we as community members can make by, you know, lobbying to our local parliament and, and going through those different types of processes and, and really hoping and pushing for change, as opposed to looking at everything as this overwhelming patriarchy, misogyny, things like that, it's really, I think, been an insight to kind of pull out and say we actually can make substantial change and we can make it now. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, I mean, that's very exciting that, you know, by getting a community of people together and, you know, helping educate each other, it is you're able to kind of, I suppose, have more impact when, um, you know, you've got more people that are in your corner. I'm interested, what's in store for the future of the show? Yeah, so I'm really excited. We've got some wonderful guests that are coming on for the rest of the year. I was just able to interview um, someone named Michael Unbroken, who's a real leader in the area uh, over in the States for child sexual abuse, and he goes through that as a survivor of abuse himself as a child. Um, I'm really hoping to push forward, and I'm in the process at the moment of organising some networking events. Um, I think the aim for that is really to start having some events. I don't believe these conversations just need to be at the press cups club level or at that, you know, executive corporate office type level. I think we can really push for having some quite fun and interesting events together where we can share stories, connect, and really start to destigmatize these conversations in, in general settings. Mm. Madeline Heather, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for having me. Have a great day. You too. Uh, Madeline Heather there, who is the creator and host of the podcast Reclaim Me. It is a podcast where survivors of abuse and trauma can tell their stories. That's it for me today. A big thank you to Mel Chun for speaking to me about her wonderful audio documentary Tin Valley and Madeline Heather for talking to me about her podcast Reclaim Me. Keep it locked to Triple R. This is Beth AQ. Thanks for listening to the podcast of The Glass House, a weekly radio show that airs on Triple R each Wednesday. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via Twitter at Bethany AQ or the Triple R website.